So we're going to be learning this week Parashat Vayeshev, which was uh, last week's parasha. Uh, very uh, intriguing storyline that begins, uh, obviously, the um, whole narrative of Yosef and the brothers, which is very famous, very well known, and uh, very popular story to study and discuss. And in fact, it goes all the way, really, to the end of Parashat Bere- to the end of Sefer Bereshit. The rest of Sefer Breshit is almost entirely uh, occupied with the story of Yosef and his brothers, the conflict between them, the uh, eventual reconciliation, and of course the descent into Mitzrayim. But uh, as we've been this year trying to focus on uh, storylines that are given less attention and to try to um, delve into elements of the weekly parasha that are glossed over, or maybe we feel that uh, we haven't adequately understood. So uh, this week also, I'd like to direct our attention towards a story that is, uh, I wouldn't say it's neglected totally, but I don't think that it's uh, seen as the the main event of Parashat Vayeshev, that's for sure. The main focus is always on Yosef, and we're kind of like eager to get back to Yosef and what's going to befall him in Mitzrayim and so on. Uh, but the story of Yehudan Tamar is a story that jumps out uh, right in the middle, right in the in the uh, in between the sale of Yosef and the Torah's retelling uh, of what occurred in Mitzrayim when Yosef came to the house of Potiphar and then was placed in the jail. Uh, right in the middle of that is the story of Yehudan Tamar, and the story of Yehudan Tamar is uh, unusual for many reasons. It doesn't clearly relate in any way to what comes before or what comes after. I think that is the aspect of the story that makes it most difficult for people to relate to, aside from the complications of the characters. We're going to get to that, but uh, just the fact that it seems to interrupt the narrative flow of the parasha, there's no immediate explanation for why we are shifting from a discussion of Yosef's fate to a uh, discussion of the family drama of Yehuda, and uh, in particular where that family drama doesn't have any uh, immediate impact on the unfolding story and doesn't seem to be relevant to anything else going on, at least not for a long time. We know that one of the offspring of Yehuda and Tamar is uh, Peretz, who is the ancestor of the Mashiach or of David Melech, so therefore is, a, uh, is an important person. But that can't be the reason for the introduction of this entire long story in the middle of a narrative about Yosef. So I'd like to try to understand what the, uh, what the lessons are of the story of Yehuda and Tamar. I, I don't think that we can exhaust the story, obviously, in one class or in one discussion, but I would like to try to uh, attempt to gain some clarity in, into the uh, what's happening in the story and hopefully also what the relationship is between this mini story, this sort of like uh, story that almost stands alone on its own and this, what happens before and after with Yosef, the sale of Yosef and, and then the career of Yosef or the beginnings of the career of Yosef in Mitzrayim. What is, what is the relevance of the story? So let's take a look at the, um, just to try to get a... Uh, uh, a bird's eye view of what happens here. Vayiba etahi, it says at that time, and this is chapter Lamid Chet, this is chapter 38 of Bereshit. So no matter what book you're using, whatever Chumash you're using, you can find it in chapter 38 of Bereshit. It's also the beginning of the fourth Aliyah, fourth 
רביעי. So, ויהי בעת ההיא, וירד יהודה מתך. At that time, and this is right after the sale of Yosef to, to Egypt. At that time, וירד יהודה מתך. יהודה went down from his brothers. Meaning he descended, he went to a different geographical area. וייט עד איש עד עולמי ושמו חירה. And he pitched his tent by a, uh, an, a person uh, who was of, uh, of Adulam, a different nation, not a, not a Jew. Ushmo Chira, and his name was Chira. Now, the commentaries point out that even though it says Vahiba Etahi, for sure Yehuda was not, um, did not relocate after the story of Yosef completely was over because chronologically speaking, that wouldn't leave enough time for everything that we see transpires in the story, that Yehuda gets married and he has three children and they grow up and time passes and all, so on and so forth. Wouldn't it be able to squeeze all of this into um, the period of time that elapsed between Yosef's departure to Egypt and the reconciliation of the brothers the, and the reunion? So therefore they say this must have happened a little bit before, but actually... Uh, or at least the beginning of the story must have actually happened before Yosef was sold, that Yehuda was already living in this other area, sort of independent, separate from the rest of the family, among uh, non-Jewish um, friends and associates, and getting married and having children there. This must have already begun beforehand. Now, that itself is very significant because it means that there's an overlap chronologically with the stories. But let's see what happens. Vayarsham Yehuda batish Yehuda saw there the daughter of a Canaanite man, and that is the simple meaning. Although some of the commentaries say, no, Canaanite doesn't mean a Canaanite, it means a, uh, it doesn't mean a Canaanite by uh, ethnicity, but it means a, uh, it means a merchant. But the simple meaning is that it means that he married with someone who was not uh, uh, Semitic, who was not from the, from the uh, descendants of Shem, but was a Canaanite. He married her, two sons with her. He actually eventually had three sons with her. Er, Onan, and uh, Shela. Now, and these three sons um, have a, uh, a very compli- play a complicated role in the unfolding story. Yehuda married off his oldest son to a woman named Tamar. It says that Eru, the firstborn of Yehuda, was evil in the eyes of Hashem, and Hashem killed him. Now, it doesn't tell us what he did wrong. It doesn't explain what it was that made Eru uh, fall out of favor with God and deserve to be killed. But it says that Hashem did not, uh, was not happy with him, found him to be evil, and therefore killed him. So that was son number one of Yehuda. Now removed from the picture. And Yehuda said to Onan, the second son, Come to your brother's wife and marry her. This is called the mitzvah yibum. We have the idea of yibum in the Torah as well, that if a uh, man dies without having any children, so then the brother of that man has a mitzvah to marry the widow. And, uh, and, and exactly as Yehuda says here, marry her and set up offspring for your brother. In other words, to perpetuate the memory of the brother. You marry the uh, the widow. Vayeda Onan ki lo lo yezara, and Onan knew that the child the child would not belong to him. Vayag imbay leishet achiv. So whenever he would be intimate with his brother's wife, v'shichet arza, he would waste his seed on the ground. The viltino ton zera leachiv, so that he wouldn't give children to his brother. In other words, it was he didn't see any benefit for him, for for himself. Uh, in establishing a name for his brother or creating a legacy for his brother. And so he just enjoyed the immediate 
gratification of intimacy, but without any commitment, basically. And this was the version of birth control that they had available to them back then. And what he did was also evil in the eyes of Hashem. And so Hashem killed him as well. So it's very interesting. Obviously, that is not a sin that uh, the wasting of seed is not a sin that is uh, a capital crime. So why Hashem killed uh, Onan has to go deeper than that. It's not simply the action that he did. The action that he did was not an offense that would be worthy of the death penalty, but it reflected something about his character, the selfishness of his personality. In fact, the rabbis say that from these words here, it says, Vayamet gam oto. He killed also him. Meaning that he killed not only Er, the firstborn, but also Onan. And Rashi actually quotes what the rabbis say here. That actually Er also did the same sin. So this is interesting that the rabbis make this observation. They say from the fact that the deaths of the two brothers are linked by the word gam also. The implication is, that, in other words, from saying that, 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 uh, that uh, Onan was killed also, implying that there was a relationship and a connection between the reason for which he was killed and the reason for which Er was killed. And uh, that Er also did not want his wife to become pregnant. Rashi quotes the rabbis as saying it's because he didn't want her beauty to be marred by the pregnancy. But what does that show you? That shows us that both of these boys had a kind of a selfish quality to them. They didn't want to have children. So ironically, Yehuda, perhaps not realizing that, I'm sure not realizing that, says to Onan, please uh, take your brother's widow and have children with her. And of course, he has the same uh, attitude as his brother, and he doesn't really want to do that. And I, and and really, his brother, even the the deceased brother, wasn't really that interested in uh, perpetuating uh, himself through having children. And so the and and Onan is no different. So I think that's the way we have to look at it. We have to look at it. It's not really about the spilling of the seed per se here. That's not the sin that's really um, uh, that that really jumps out. But it's leviltin zera leachiv. That Onan didn't want to give children to his brother and his brother himself didn't want to have children according to the rabbis and it's one of the reasons or perhaps the reason why Hashem uh, did not spare his life either because they both had a selfish and self-centered attitude. They didn't want to have any children. And in fact, it's interesting that, uh, that the rabbis say in the Midrash about Nadav and Aviu, another two sons of a great person, of Aharon, who died, says also one of the sins that they were uh, uh, that it were, was attributed to Nadav and Avihu. There are many different theories and many different um, explanations given in the Midrash why Nadav and Avihu died. Um, but one of them is that they didn't have children and they didn't want to have children. And so this, again, seems to uh, uh, point, may, maybe be a parallel to, uh, to the story of Erve Onan here, not wanting to have children as a type of a uh, wanting to live in the moment. And uh, So Yehuda gives an excuse to Tamar and says, Wait until Shela, my third son, gets older. Stay in your father's house. Because he said, maybe he will die like his brothers. And so Tamar went and sat in the house of her father. Now, the question is, does that mean that Yehuda understood that his first two sons had a flaw in their character and were going to die and therefore thought Shela might have the same flaw. But it, it, that's one possible way of reading it, but I don't think that that's the way of reading it that is uh, most indicated by the text. 
seemingly Yehuda blamed Tamar and thought that it was Tamar's problem and Tamar's fault that the first two sons died. He didn't see their flaw. He didn't see their uh, their failing. He saw her as the cause and therefore didn't want to subject his third son to the same fate and imprisoned her basically as a widow in her father's house. Now, what's, there's going to be a certain irony here but we'll go with, uh, that's going, that the story is going to present us with very soon. Many days passed. And the daughter of Shua, which was, but Shua was the name of the wife of Yehuda, died. And so eventually Yehuda was consoled and he felt better and he went for the shearing of the sheep to Timna, where they would have, uh, where they would have a, a, a shearing of the sheep um, each year, uh, each season. And uh, he was willing to go because he knew that, uh, that it was a, uh, you know, he, he was able to get over the, the loss of his wife. So they said to Tamar that he's coming to Timnat or Timna to shear his sheep. They told Tamar that he's coming. So she ends up dressing. We know she takes off her clothing, uh, her widow clothing. She dresses up in a more provocative, beautiful way. She covers herself up with a veil and because she wants to encounter Yehuda because she saw that Shelah had gotten older and she never did get the opportunity to marry him and to continue on with her life and to uh, continue on with her family and the legacy of her first husband. And, and, and so therefore she's stuck in place. She wants to... Now the question is, did she really intend to have a liaison with Yehuda or did she really intend to uh, just confront him? And so some of the commentaries take it here that she just really wanted to confront him. But what happened was that Yehuda propositions her and so she goes along with it. Because he didn't recognize her. Yehuda saw her and thought she was a prostitute, a woman of ill repute, because she was covering her face and hiding her identity and it was something that was considered shameful. So, um, therefore, he thought that she was a woman of the night, as they say, he went towards her to the way. And he said, let me be with you. Because he didn't realize it was his own daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you can be with me? Now the interesting thing is that you'll notice that it says about Yehuda twice, he saw. It says he saw Batshua, the woman that he decided to marry. And here it also says that he saw her. Seeing is usually an indication of superficiality, of impulse. We saw that, uh, we learned um, many weeks ago that it says that when Esav saw that his father sent Yitzchak, I'm sorry, that his father sent Yaakov to live with Lavan, he saw that his father didn't like the daughters of Kena'an, so therefore he went and married one of the daughters of Ishmael in order to uh, make himself proper in the eyes of his father. But he didn't understand that the real reason that his father was opposed to that course of action was because he was marrying Kina'ani women, not because, not because he just wanted him to go and uh, for show marry a woman who was a descendant of Avram. That wasn't the point. But it says he saw, whereas when it talks about Yaakov, it says Vayishma. He heard, he understood. So here we see Yehuda seeing, observe, so he's using his eyes, meaning it's superficial response. 
So again, he sees this woman and he goes towards her, just like he saw Batshua and he married her. So she said, what will you give me? He said, I'll send you a, a goat. You have to give me some kind of a guarantee, some kind of a uh, collateral uh, until you send the goat. He said, what can I give you? And she says, I want your seal and your cord or cords are some kind of also official kind of an item that he had. Uh, she says it means um, it's uh, some kind of a cloak that he would wear, whatever it was. And it was, and, and also your staff that you hold in your hands. So the idea is, these are all identifying items. And he gives it to her. And she ends up becoming pregnant from this encounter. She goes back into her widow clothing as if it never happened. Now, what's remarkable here is that, again, Yehuda, just like the, uh, his sons, is engaged in behavior seeking gratification with no strings attached, with no um, thought about the long-term future. And I think that is one of the themes here that really jumps out. That Yehuda, basically, the equivalent of handing over to a complete stranger your credit card, social security number, and car keys. I mean, that's basically what he gave her. He gave her things that are highly sensitive items, um, personal identification, have to do with the, his position, have to do with his, uh, you know, his, his own security, and he hands it over to this uh, complete stranger for a uh, moment's enjoyment. And then he says, I'm going to send you a goat. And meanwhile, he sends the goat and they're not able to identify the woman anymore. She's not around. And when they ask the people there, where is that woman who is the woman of ill repute, the woman of the night? They say, there was no such woman here. So his friend, he sent his friend actually to uh, bring the goat to the girl and get her to give back his identifying items. And they can't find her. This is Pasuk Kavbet now, just skipping a little bit. Verse number 22, he says, I couldn't find her. And the people there said there was no such woman here. So Yehuda says, you know what? Let her keep it. Because otherwise it's going to be embarrassing. People are going to say, the way the Ibn Ezra explains it is, it's going to be embarrassing when people see that I gave her such sensitive items just for a quick liaison. You know, that I gave her like my social security number, my credit card, or my car keys for, for what? To a total stranger. Bad move. It's going to be embarrassing. So he says, listen, I tried to send her the payment. We didn't find her. So that's it. Now, again, there is a certain impulsivity to the acts of Yehuda in the story. And I don't think that's accidental. I think that is showing us a picture of who he is um, at this stage of his life and what things he needs to work on to become a leader. And he will arise to become a a great leader. But even the... um, And and this will show us that, uh, you know, what the connection is between the previous story, the story of the sale of Yosef, where Yehuda played a decisive role. He was the one that made the final decision of what to do. And he made the decision and the calculation based, based on expediency, but without much thought about the long-term future, the implication of selling Yosef for their own sense of, uh, their own conscience, for their own sense of, uh, uh, of uh, moral uh, direction and principle, for their own father and the impact it would have on him and on the family dynamic and on the future of the family. They didn't think of any of those things. 
um, at the time that he made that decision. So there is a uh, impulsivity to his decision making. And again, when it turned out that Tamar was pregnant and everyone knew she was pregnant, and they said she was zanata Tamar kalatecha, she has done an immoral action, and now she is pregnant. And without any irony or uh, sense of uh, self consciousness that you would expect him to have, he says, "Oh, take her out." To burn her. In other words, she has to be punished. She has to be executed for what she's done. Now, the irony is, of course, to the reader, that this is the very person who participated in the same immoral act, the same inappropriate act. Of course, he wasn't, um, he was a, a widow. He was a widower. She was a widow. She was intended for his son but um, and but that was viewed as a violation of uh, of propriety for her to be involved with any other man, and, and yet his own violation of propriety he didn't uh, he didn't treat as harshly. And there's there's definitely some irony to Yehuda's response when he himself was guilty of the very crime he is uh, to, he's passing sentence on Tamar for having committed. And the, the thing is that, of course, you can argue, well, it was different and because she was supposed to be uh, waiting patiently for the third son of Yehuda to marry her and he didn't have any such commitment. But still, the fact of the matter is that it's, uh, it was considered even he realized that what he had done was a little bit embarrassing. It wasn't something honorable. It wasn't considered to be something appropriate, something uh, to be proud of. So, and yet he's willing to pass judgment on Tamar very quickly. He mutet, and as she's going out, she sends her, her father-in-law the private items that he had given her. Whoever these items belong to, I am pregnant from him. But she said, identify please. And remember, identify please is exactly the words that the brothers said to Yaakov when they showed him the bloody tunic of Yosef. They said, can you please identify whether this belongs to Yosef. And here, um, she says, can you please identify, who do these items belong to, including your seal and your stick and ptilim, whether it's some kind of a, uh, some kind of a clothing, uh, item of clothing. And he, so he recognized the items and he said, she was more righteous than I, because I never allowed her to marry my son. He didn't have any further relations with her, but she ends up giving birth to twins. And these twins uh, are, again, in a way, uh, you could say a replacement for Yehuda of the two sons that he lost, a continuation of the legacy of his family to the next generation, the fulfillment of what Tamar really wanted, which was to be a part of the continuation, the perpetuation of that legacy that she didn't have the opportunity to do with Shela um, or with the first two brothers. But again, you have twins here. And the first of the twins, first, the, the, the first uh, who appears to be the first twin, they called him Zerach. But then it turned out that the second twin emerged first. They put a red uh, string on the arm of the, uh, uh, of the first baby, the baby they thought was going to come out first, saying this is the one that came out first. But then he ended up pulling back and the other one came out. And they said, oh, this is the one that's, uh, that's going to be the first. So, and that was Peretz. So the interesting thing is that again, um, and I think that there's a, a, a little bit of a poetic, um, sort of a, 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 a poetic message here that they jumped to the conclusion about who the first baby was going to be to emerge based on his hand coming out. When in reality, that was uh, shooting from the hip. That was a, a again, a, 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 a too quick, too hasty of a decision, too hasty of a determination to make. And that's really the, um, the theme 
of much of the story of Yehuda is people making decisions rashly, people making decisions without uh, the necessary foresight or without the long view. And, uh, and here too, even, even here in the birthing of the babies, there was a rush to determine which one was first, uh, which was quickly dispro- you know, proven to be incorrect. So the, if there's any theme that runs throughout the story of Yehuda, at least on the surface, it would be that Yehuda is a person who is governed by more immediate impulses in his decision making, in his decision, and, and we see it in, in terms of his separation from his family, his marrying a woman who really might not have been appropriate for him, and then his, his raising of sons who are likewise self-indulgent and don't have a long view, don't have a sense of the importance of delaying gratification uh, or uh, channeling their desire for satisfaction into something more constructive and more uh, long-term, uh, more based upon the destiny of the Jewish people or or uh, some grand idea, but they're really concerned more for their immediate satisfaction. And then Yehuda himself, who falls prey to that once again, when he has the liaison with Tamar. In fact, the Midrash says that a malach, an angel, went into Yehuda and gave him the impulse to want to be with Tamar when he saw her on the road. The Rambam in Moreh Nebuchim says that this angel just means the instinct. It just means that the instincts that Hashem will use whatever when a person is operating with their intelligence and their free will. So that's how Hashem works through them, because they operate with their intelligence and free will and they follow the will of God. But when a person is not operating on that level and they're following their impulses and instincts, so God uses that as a tool as well. And their natural instincts and desires also become an instrument in uh, God's plan. And that's what happened here to produce these two children, uh, Zerach and Peretz, who go on to be very critical figures in the unfolding uh, future of the Jewish people Peretz, of course, is the ancestor of David Amelech. That's what we call him Ben Partzi, uh, in uh, because he comes from Peretz. The point being here that Yehuda is being described as somebody who is of uh, lacking to some extent in uh, maturity of judgment, in what we call Hevu Mitunim Badin. What, the, what Pirkei Avot says: a person has to be cautious and careful when it comes to judging. And we saw from the beginning, from how he judged Yosef without fully taking. Uh, in the full picture and uh, considering the long-term impact of the decision. Here as well, we see multiple examples of that until finally he says, many, she was right and not me because she was the one uh, you know, who was waiting for my son to be given to her and I didn't give, it, uh, give him uh, because I assumed that uh, I wanted to protect him from the harm that was going to befall him and I didn't realize that actually it was my, my two sons who were responsible for their own deaths and it was not her. She was the one who uh, was, was seeking to build a family and really wanted to be a part of the future of Am Yisrael when all of these other characters in the story are mar- more concerned with their immediate gratification. She's the only person who actually, uh, actually has a long-term uh, future orientation that she wants to build something that's going to last. And that is what Yehuda says, Tzadikami Meni, she was more righteous than I. Um, meaning that she saw things more accurately and more correctly, and she was justified in the things that she did in the story. Um, and she basically manipulated Yehuda, Yehuda's in, uh, impulsive and instinctual nature in this situation uh, to her advantage to be able to accomplish something of great significance. Now, that is what we see in Yehuda. Yehuda coming to, in this case is able to um, uh, to see the truth, but the uh, and, and to acknowledge it, and eventually he's going to build upon this new maturity and be able to save the day when uh, when reunion with Yosef becomes possible. Uh, but right now, 
all we see is the beginning stages of his emergence as a leader, that he's able to take responsibility for missteps and for misjudgments that he made, judging his children more favorably than they deserved, judging Tamar less favorably than she deserved, and judging himself maybe too charitably, uh, his own impulsive uh, decisions too charitably as well. So looking back, we see that there's also an interesting um, parallel between the story. I mentioned that already that they brought the piece of clothing of Yosef to, uh, they brought the coat of Yosef to Yaakov and said, Hatirna, please identify this. Does this belong to your, um, uh, to your son? And he said yes. And then he decided that Yosef must have been killed by a wild animal. Here we see that, you, that Tamar sends to Yehuda these items um, that he very irresponsibly and rashly gave a total stranger, even though they were highly, uh, highly uh, sensitive documents or highly sensitive items. Um, and uh, he, he recognized them and realized what his role in the whole situation had actually been. And later on, we find another case where um, clothing is utilized as evidence against somebody. And that is in the case of Yosef and Potiphar's wife, where Potiphar's wife is pressuring Yosef to be in a relationship with her. It's actually, the Ibn Ezra points out, quite the opposite of the story of Yehuda. In the story of Yehuda, he is the one who sees the woman and is drawn to her. He first sees Bachua, marries her, and basically um, begins to raise a family in a very Kina'ani manner. Uh, and, and later on, uh, also sees the woman on the side of the road that turns out to be Tamar. Yosef, on the other hand, uh, is able to withstand the badgering and the pressure and the seductions of the wife of Potiphar, which is quite the opposite, as the Ibn Ezra points out, of Yehuda. That y- Yosef has throughout his life, and really from the very beginning, a very forward-looking perspective. He's very disciplined in a certain way, although he does have some character uh, challenges that he has to overcome and that he does overcome over the years. But he himself has uh, a, a great discipline because he is forward-thinking, because his mind is on the future and his mind is on his destiny. Therefore, he sticks with the plan. He sticks with his principles. He sticks with his, uh, you know, he keeps his goals and his objectives in mind all the time. And that's why he's able to be successful, whereas Yehuda seems to have lost that to a, a greater or lesser extent in these stories. And that's what's being shown to us. But as I mentioned, there's another parallel, which is that what does is, what is Yosef do when he runs out of the house, when Potiphar's wife is trying to grab him? He leaves his clothes and runs out. And then what does she do? She brings the clothing and she shows her husband, look what your slave, your Hebrew slave, Yosef, left behind when he ran out because he was trying to seduce me. She blames it on him. She tries to turn it around on him and uh, on Yosef because she was insulted by the fact that he rejected her. Uh, that's a whole other story. But uh, she took it very personally because of the way in which she rejected her. And therefore, when you know, she kept that as a piece of evidence, it specifically says she kept it by her all day until her husband came home so she could show him and say, look, uh, I have the evidence. So we have a third piece of clothing being brought as evidence. In this case, to, in the first case, it was Yosef to uh, blame an animal for the death of Yosef. Uh, in the second case, it was to exonerate Tamar. And here it is to falsely accuse Yosef of the crime of trying to uh, take advantage of the wife of Potiphar. Now, what's fascinating is that the first person not to make a rash decision is Potiphar. Because Yaakov Avinu 
quickly concludes that his son has been killed by a wild animal. And 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 Yehuda before he sees the uh, before he sees the items that implicate him quickly concludes that Tamar is the source of all problems and that the fact that she's become pregnant out of wedlock is just another proof that she's no good and quickly wants to pass judgment on her whereas Potiphar we see that even though his wife brings evidence to the effect that Yosef has been doing something bad he doesn't fully believe her and that's why we see, again, the Ibn Ezra points this out, but other commentaries say it as well, that if he had really believed that Yosef tried to seduce his wife, there's no way he would have just put him in the prison where anyway he ended up becoming like a celebrity in the prison and a worker in the prison and like an official of the prison. Of the prison. Um, he never would have allowed that to happen. He would have, of course, executed Yosef um, because of the uh, disgraceful behavior. So you see from this that even Potiphar himself did not fully believe his wife, didn't fully believe that, uh, that w- what, what she claimed, even though he saw... The garment, even though he saw evidence, he still judged him uh, with caution. He judged Yosef with care and caution. He didn't jump to any conclusion. So he's the first character that doesn't jump to a conclusion. Of course, Yehuda retracts his initial conclusion. But Potiphar doesn't jump to a conclusion. He maintains a sort of a um, middle position where he says, I don't know who's really telling the truth, so I'm going to remove him from our home, but I'm not going to punish him too severely because perhaps he didn't really do it. So... This is the, uh, I, I think, really the, the lesson in the story of Yehudan Tamar. And it was always something that, uh, um, that I, I wondered about. What is the significance of the story and how does it fit with what comes before and what comes after? And it seems that the idea that Yehuda is quick to judgment, the idea that Yehuda is too driven by the immediate, by immediate gratification, by uh, seeking to um, reach hasty conclusions and resolve issues without um, doing his due diligence and shifting the blame to the person that he is most comfortable doing so and shifting it away from the people that uh, he doesn't want to, uh, that that he's disinclined to blame, like his own children. Uh, This method of operating uh, is what what was responsible for his failure of leadership in allowing Yosef to be sold because he didn't think about the big picture and continues to plague him as he sets up his own family in uh, Kena'an in terms of the people he marries, people with whom he associates and the other activities that he does. But Tamar in this case, on one hand, uh, is and Yosef also, and even Potiphar are people that have a more sober uh, attitude of judgment and are more disciplined and are more uh, principled in the way that they go about doing things because they have a long-term vision of the future. And we even see that Yosef ends up working for Potiphar. Some say he even married the daughter of Potiphar uh, because he was able to see in Yosef great things, the potential for great things, and he was not willing to judge him so harshly and so quickly. So the the lesson here being that Tamar, who had a long-term view, was able to bring into the world Peretz and Zerach, who are going to be the forerunners of Shevet Yehuda and ultimately of the Mashiach, as just as Yosef was, it will bring about 
another one of the most, uh, he'll be the ancestor of another one of the, uh, uh, of the most important shvatim, important tribes of leadership in Israel, which is the tribe of Yosef that splits into Ephraim and Menasheh, but becomes also a seat of leadership in the Jewish people. Yehuda reaches that, but only after a process of growth um, where he can overcome his hasty judgment and his impulsive uh, responses uh, that are unfit for leadership. Uh, but he, through the tests that he endures, ultimately he's able to do that. And of course, we know that the fullest expression of that is when he's willing to give himself up completely just to salvage the family, just to save his father and salvage the future of the family by giving himself up as a slave in order to save Binyamin from the clutches of the person that he thought was this evil Egyptian overlord, but was really Yosef. The, um, that was the ultimate sense of uh, a big picture overriding a more narrow and immediate gratification um, in that circumstance, because he really would have been giving up his entire life just for the sake of the family and ultimately for the sake of the Jewish people, uh, for his father as the, uh, as one of the, as the patriarch. Um, to be able to do that required a tremendous sacrifice on his part, but he was willing to do it. And that came as a result of these experiences that he had too. So um, I, if, if there's anything that we can learn from the juxtaposition here or from the comparison and contrast between Yehuda and Yosef, it is that distinction, uh, that leadership requires self-controlled discipline and a sense of long-term future. Someone who is driven by the immediate will not be able to be a great leader because their judgment will be faulty and their decisions will be hasty and reactive rather than well thought out and principled. And that is why Yosef rises to prominence early on, whereas Yehuda requires a bunch of uh, transformative experiences before he'll be able to do that. And in fact, part of his, um, his role uh, in establishing his own shevet was not even uh, wasn't even conscious of it because it was actually Tamar that took advantage of his weakness basically to uh, bring forth something greater to actually in the end force him to come to terms with his own failings and uh, and take responsibility for what he had done which was the first step on the road to really um, becoming the leader that he would become and we know that in the end actually Yehuda ends up being the progenitor of uh, King David and uh, the ancestor of, of the, uh, the Malchut, basically. The kingship of Israel is vested in Yehuda. So we see that it did work, that Yehuda does rise to the occasion eventually, and his tribe becomes a tribe of great leadership. And, uh, and throughout Tanakh, the Bnei Yehuda were singled out as the group that was the most um, critical in the battles of Israel and in other uh, moments of decisive leadership took a uh, you know took a prominent role. So that's the story of Yehuda and Tamar. I think that it really does uh, now can really be understood in the context of the story as an important uh, commentary. Number one on who Yehuda was and who he was meant to be and what circumstances brought him. Uh, to the next step of his journey and his personal development, but also sheds light on what was really unique about Yosef uh, in, and his character uh, that enabled Yosef to rise to the levels that he did. So, Bezrat uh, Hashem, next week we will continue with uh, the following parasha, with parashat Miketz. I hope this gives everyone something to think about. I was really delighted to speak about this 
story because it's a story that I think we gloss over too much. And I'm happy that we had the opportunity to discuss it and to delve into it a little bit more this year. And Bezrat Hashem, next year we'll find uh, even more points of illumination to, uh, to talk about. Have a great evening and Chag Sameach, everybody.